Well, good morning. Thank you again for joining us in our series, All the Earth Will Shout Your Praise, from Psalm 113.3. I have to tell you, Pastor Joe and I have had a ball in this series. We have enjoyed ourselves immensely, uh, working together, talking together, uh, reading your notes, your emails, uh, regarding your experiences and the thoughts and memories that you have had with many of these songs and how they were important on your spiritual journey. Thank you so much for engaging with this series. It's exciting uh, to hear how God is using this series to, to speak to the hearts and minds uh, of, of His church, and specifically of South Suburban Christian Church. Uh, one of my favorite phrases, by God's grace and for His glory. Today we are continuing in our series and we're looking at a favorite, uh, How Great Thou Art, uh, an old song that my parents and grandparents sung at the top of their lungs. The text that I want to share with you today as uh, we begin to delve into this song is from the Gospel according to Mark, Mark chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go get it. Look at Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 36. Let us hear now the word of God. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Today, uh, we're considering one of the most famous hymns of all time. As a matter of fact, in the year 2001, uh, this hymn, How Great Thou Art, was ranked second as the most favorite hymn in the United States after Amazing Grace, of course. And it was uh, uh, viewed by uh, other researchers in 2016 as one of the top 10 favorite hymns in the world. Now, great care has been given in recent years to include a variety of hymnody in modern-day hymnals. If you were to pick up any hymn book that's been published over the last mm, decade or two, uh, you'll find songs and spirituals and hymns from Latin America, from Asia, and from Africa. Even though these hymns are at our fingertips these days, most churches still continue to keep to their own ethnic cultural tunes. And most of the best-loved hymns in a typical hymn book, in an American hymn book by American Christians, 50 years old or older, I might add, are probably going to be hymns of American, English, and German origin. From Martin Luther's, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, to the hymn of that Anglican priest, John Newton, you know it as Amazing Grace, to the beloved, Great is Thy Faithfulness, 
by the Kentucky-born Thomas Chisholm. These songs have spoken to generations of Christians, to generations of people looking for an understanding of how God is working in their life. Now, the song we're looking at today, How Great Thou Art, well, it has a bit more of an unusual history than some of those other great hymns that I've already mentioned to you. Written in 1885 by Swedish pastor Carl Gustav Boberg. Now, let's put that into perspective for just a moment to help us kind of understand uh, the context of the hymn. In 1885 in the United States, Grover Cleveland became the first Democrat president elected since the Civil War. General George Patton, of the great famed General Patton of World War II, was born in November of 1885. It was the year that the United States government decided to recognize Christmas as a national holiday. And my favorite thing that happened in 1885... Mark Twain published his book, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, only to have public libraries across the country ban the use of that book because of its coarse language. What language, you might ask? Well, in the book, Twain uses the word sweat instead of a more appropriate word like perspire. At that time in Sweden, where our esteemed Carl Gustav Boberg was serving as a pastor, about the only major thing that happened in Sweden was that women were finally allowed to become members of the Swedish Publishist Society. It would lay the groundwork for some of the most famous female reporters and writers in the history of Sweden. Well, on the day that Boberg penned this hymn, How Great Thou Art, it was a fateful spring day in 1885. Boberg was walking home to a small bayside town on the southeastern coast of Sweden, when in a moment, as if out of nowhere, thunderclaps and lightning swiftly swept across the bay and began to literally shake the rocks that were around him. As Boberg sought desperately for some shelter to escape, some place to find refuge, he was able to nestle himself in the cleft of a small cliff until the ferocity of the storm began to let up. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, as quickly as it had come, it vanished. When the storm relented, he ran home as quick as he could, opened the windows of his cottage to the cool, fresh air that was now blowing across the bay into the village. He records in his diaries that as he looked out the window, he could hear the thrushes sing, he could see the trees sway in the breeze, and off in the distance he could hear the echoing of church bells. It was such a calm visage for Boberg especially compared to the angry storm of only minutes ago, he sat down with pencil and paper and began to pen the words of a poem, O Store Gud, Swedish for O Great God. This poem would eventually be paired with a Swedish folk tune, which frankly became its undoing in the season that followed. Now, Although today, when we hear How Great Thou Art, 
and we'll hear it here in just a few moments, we are moved to hum with the great sound and resonance of that hymn, especially as it crescendos in that great refrain. To those 19th century Swedes, however, that tune, being an old Swedish folk tune, was something that they just couldn't see paired with a sacred song or poem. I guess it would be sort of like taking the hymn Amazing Grace and pairing it to the tune of Gilligan's Island or House of the Rising Sun by the Animals. Can you imagine that song being sung to those tunes in church? I know what some of you are going to go do now. You're going to start uh, Googling uh, how Amazing Grace sounds with House of the Rising Sun. It's actually not bad. I just don't know if, well, we would sing it that way in church anytime soon. This song, How Great Thou Art, would eventually be lost to history. Until the 20th century, when out of nowhere, and no one knows how it arrived, it appeared in Germany. It had been translated into the German language from the Swedish language, but the tune stayed with it. A few, a few years later, it would be translated again, this time into Russian, and wouldn't be finally translated into English until 1925. But that particular translation was never deemed very popular. And so the song, again, faded into oblivion. It wasn't until 1930 that an English missionary, Stuart Hine, who was serving in the Ukraine, would hear the song in the Russian language and translate it afresh into the English, this time adding some other verses, and finally publishing it in 1949 under the title, How Great Thou Art. The story would have ended there, except for a British-American theologian and evangelist named J. Edwin Orr. Uh, Pastor Orr had traveled to India in 1954, and he was preaching in uh, small churches throughout that country, specifically in the northeastern parts of India. And in one particular village where he went to preach, he heard a local choir sing the hymn in English. He was so impressed and so amazed by the words and the tune that he brought it back with him to the United States, and it became a part of his college presentations, his, his college conferences that he would do as he sought to reach students in American colleges with the gospel of Christ. Well, in one of those fateful college conferences, there was a man by the name of Tim Spencer who was in, was in attendance. Now, now, some of you may remember the name Tim Spencer. He was someone known as a singing cowboy, along the same lines as Roy Rogers. Now, pretty much all of us have heard that name, Roy Rogers. And Tim Spencer would be so amazed that he would take the song and have it published under his Christian music label, Mana Music. From there, the song was discovered by none other than George Beverly Shea, that great bass soloist who traveled with Billy Graham on his crusades. And from that point, How Great Thou Art would go on to be one of America's favorite hymns. As a matter of fact, in the 1957 Madison Square Garden crusade with Billy Graham, lasting for 16 weeks, that hymn, sung by George Beverly Shea, was heard by over 96 million people. 
The only secular song that even approaches that number is Rod Stewart's Copacabana in 1994 sung to only 3.5 million people. Isn't it amazing that the song that was sung to the most people in American history was this great hymn, How Great Thou Art. A song that took the world by storm as it was penned immediately after a storm way back in 1885 in a small town by a Swedish pastor. You know, it's amazing how storms can change our perspectives of life. As a matter of fact, you may remember last year when we were observing uh, the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther, that Roman Catholic priest who launched the Protestant Reformation, he, he, when, when he was uh, discerning God's call in his life, found himself in a storm. Martin Luther uh, was raised by a rather tyrannical father, and his father demanded that he go to law school, uh, an endeavor that Luther actually hated. And on one particular fateful season, when the law school was on break, Luther had made his way back to his hometown to visit with his family. On his way back to law school, a storm, much like the same kind of storm that Boberg had experienced, came over Luther. Lightning and thunder and driving rain. Luther trembled with fear and found a granite rock to cling to in the midst of the wind. And as he held on to that rock, pleading to God for his life, afraid that that would be the last moments of his temporal life, he made this promise. If you deliver me from this storm... I promised to become a monk. Well, he did survive the storm. And true to his word, would go on to study in the seminary as a monk and eventually be ordained a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. In the years that followed, he would be led by the excesses of the Roman Church to launch the Protestant Reformation. His hope was to reform the church. But unfortunately, what it did in actuality was split it. And in so doing, he changed the course of Western civilization. It was a storm much like the storm Boberg experienced, the kind that come up quick, the kind that rage with great violence and then disappear as quickly as they came, the, the kind of storm that's actually fairly common on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus and his disciples were crossing over to the east side of the sea to the land of the Gerasenes, where he would deliver the demoniac. Now, I don't know if you know much about the Sea of Galilee, but it's one of the most unique features on the planet Earth. It is actually a sea that is below sea level, 696 feet below sea level, actually. Because of that, it's extremely susceptible to intense downdrafts that come off the Mediterranean Sea across the northern part of what is today Israel, and then down onto the Sea of Galilee. As a matter of fact, the storms were so quick and so fierce, it was a normal occurrence for boats to be capsized and for fishermen and seafaring people to lose their life. And so Jesus and his disciples find themselves in a storm all too common, and suddenly that storm changes the lives of those disciples as well. As the boat begins to take on water, Mark says in his gospel, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat on a cushion. Well, the disciples in the midst of this storm are fearing for their lives. 
They could not believe that their master, Jesus, was asleep. And so they awaken him with this question. A question that I can only imagine cut Jesus to the heart. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You know, I think that's a pretty relatable experience in pretty much all of our lives. Every single one of us have found ourselves in the storms of life, and we wonder why it seems that God is asleep. I'm sure each of you can share your own personal storm. The death of a child, a spouse, a parent, the loss of a job, divorce. (laughs) How about a global pandemic with hurricane after hurricane and fires that are ravaging our forests from Colorado all the way to Northern California, Oregon, and Washington. I think those are pretty good storms, don't you? So what's a way that we can respond in the midst of not only the storms that are encapsulating our nation during this fateful year, but the storms of our own lives? Maybe, like Luther, we could promise to change our lives radically and permanently. I can remember when I was 11 years old. My father had just been diagnosed with cancer. It was nothing less than a death sentence back then. I remember going to the library and checking out a book on cancer and began to struggle through it. One day, my mother walked into my bedroom and found me sitting there on the bed reading this book, trying to somehow understand these words that I could sound out, but they had no meanings to me. My mother pushed the book aside and sat down next to me on the bed and asked me what I was doing. And with the innocence of an 11-year-old, I told her that I was reading this book on cancer so that I could cure my dad. Through tears, she took the book away and she told me not to worry. She said, son, there's not anything that you can do except pray. When she left the bedroom, I prayed a prayer much like this. Dear God, if you heal my daddy, I promise I will never sin again. (laughs) Well, thankfully, God did heal my father. As a matter of fact, he would go on to live another 40 plus years. I, on the other hand, (laughs) I wasn't really able to fulfill my end of that bargain. I guess we could, like the disciples, accuse God of being asleep, not caring about those whom He said He loved. Or, perhaps we could learn a lesson from this hymn. Scholars believe that Boberg was influenced by Psalm chapter 8 in the writing of the original lyrics of this hymn. I want to read this psalm to you, and for some of you, as I read it, another song will come to mind. From Psalm chapter 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is a human being that you are mindful of them? 
and the sons of man that you care for them. Yet you have made humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given us dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under our feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, I think we humans are hardwired to worship. Not, Not just Christians, human beings as a whole. It isn't just religious people who worship. We all worship. If we don't worship a God or the one true God, we'll worship science or wealth or power, or in some cases, we'll worship ourselves. Worship is one of those things that seems to have value and significance all to its own, one that can't be explained, and one that can't really be explained away. It is who we are. It is what we do. It is how we respond to the world around us. But there are some commonalities that drive people to worship, regardless of what it is they believe in. I think one of those commonalities is fear. Folks who study these sorts of things, this phenomena of worship, have seen that we humans use worship as a way to reach through the fear we experience in our life. Some even say that the effort for humans as they worship is to reach through our fear so that we can discover the one whom we should really fear. (laughs) There's that word. English language sometimes is such a difficult language to master and to understand. In our language, fear can actually have two meanings. There's There's the word fear that uh, carries this emotion of dread, uh, this idea that we might experience harm or that we might lose our life. But there's another perspective of fear as well. And that kind of fear is the fear that I pray that you and I will really seek as we worship. It's the fear that carries respect. It's the kind of fear that carries reverence a recognition of the sacred, an understanding that sometimes in life there is simply mystery, things that can't be explained, things that are beyond our understanding, a God who is beyond what we can comprehend. It's what scholars call the transcendence of God, or the other, that which we cannot control, that which we cannot begin to even grasp. Even in pre-Christian history, humans were led to worship. Even among those nations that our Jewish forebears called the unclean, there was a searching for that which was beyond their understanding. And yet, all of us, pagan, Jew, and Christian alike, share some of the same rituals. We worship when we experience the birth of a child 
overwhelmed at the power and the stubbornness of life that continues to come in to this world. We have rituals of blessing babies and services celebrating the dedication of a child to the God who gave her as a human experience. When someone dies, the fear of the unknown, the fragility of life, different, the opposite, the other end of the spectrum from birth, but yet transcendent nonetheless, warranting our reverence, our fear, and yet at the same time our hope. Our hope of eternal life. That life hasn't just been simply snuffed out and no longer exists, but a life that is beyond what we might even know. Marriages is a time that we worship. The mystery of love, commitment, loyalty, the hope that we have for the future. And in most every religion, these celebrations are marked by holy meals. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Especially for those of us who've been raised in the church, there's nothing as wonderful and more powerful than a church potluck after a baby dedication or the reception after a wedding when we are able to experience Mrs. Smith's famous fried chicken, her potato casserole, and her chocolate cake. We Christians understand this. We Christians get this because we have a sacred meal that we celebrate every time we gather, the Lord's Supper. And at that meal, we see expressed to us the power of community. Not just the community with one another, but a community, a relationship with a transcendent God who we struggle to understand. A transcendence as we might think of it, that has been bridged. For we recognize at our holy meal that the transcendent God has become, as scholars say, imminent. That is, with us here. God comes to us. That, that's not something new or strange. You remember in John chapter 1, when John talks about the incarnation, how God clothes Himself with flesh. The God we have struggled to understand. The God that we have failed time and time again to grasp. The, the God that seems so far away from us, particularly in those moments when we are terrified. That God comes to us and embraces us. You see, it's always God that takes the initiative. You see, Boberg's hymn wasn't an effort to overcome his fear with a, a, the right way of thinking or the right way of acting. Rather, it was a response to God whose majesty, whose creative power, whose love is greater than the storms of life. And the text from the Gospel of Mark that we read in verse 39, And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. I'll have to tell you that in the storms of my own life, it has been that verse 
that has ministered to me the most. I have remembered that verse in the most horrific moments of my life, and I have recalled the words of Jesus as he speaks to the storms of my life and the storms of your life, those words of command, peace, be still. Going on with Mark, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? And then Mark says, And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, you haven't seen anything yet. In my life and in your life, when we're in the midst of the storm, it's difficult to see where God is and what God is doing. But in many, many cases, not all of them, but a great number of them, when the storms in our life have passed and we look back, we're able to say, oh, that's where God was. That's what Jesus was leading me toward. That's what the Holy Trinity was teaching me. I know for many of us, we might sense the experiences of today as a storm unlike anything we have ever experienced. Being required to physically distance from one another. Uncertain when life will return to normal. Normal where our cities have erupted in violence and uncertainty, where we are being forced to take a long, deep look at ourselves, not only as a nation, not only as the church, but as members of the human race. Some of us might be experiencing the uncertainty of what tomorrow will bring, and we may pray with fervency every night, Lord, please take this virus away. Lord, please bring peace to our nation and to our world again. And there are days and moments in those days when, like those disciples, it may seem like God is asleep. But there's this old Swedish pastor walking on his way to his little village on the coast, who saw the storms of his life. And his response was to worship him, to praise him, and to witness the power of his voice when God will speak into your life these words that echo down from that Sea of Galilee to right where you are today. Peace, be still. Have you made Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Have you placed your trust in Him? Are you still trying to escape the storms of your life by your own strength or by the promises of others, whether they be politicians or systems or organizations? None of those have authority over the sea and the wind save Jesus Christ 
who speaks those words of hope and comfort. Cling unto Him. Awaken Him with your worship and your praise. And take joy in His promise that He brings peace and calm to our lives. Say yes to this question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept Him as Lord and Savior? If you've done that today, will you click on the box that you have accepted Christ? If you're watching on one of our other platforms, YouTube, Facebook, or wherever it might be, would you drop us an email at office at southsuburban.com so that we can celebrate with you and walk with you as Christ leads you through this storm of life into a life of peace and calm. Will you pray with me? Merciful God, sometimes in the midst of the storm, our eyes go to the waves, our eyes are directed to the driving rain, and the terror and fear of our hearts overwhelms us even as the waves overwhelm our ships. Lord, may we listen in the midst of the roar of the storm for that commanding yet still small voice that speaks peace. Be still. In Jesus' name, amen.